uh, came to the conclusion that we could not ignore what the president did. He gave us no choice. It's a joke. An impeachment inquiry of President Trump begins this week. There should be a way of stopping it. The House of Representatives You will hear from his chief defender in the House, as well as the man leading the investigation. Your Republican colleagues also say, we just went through this. The Mueller report was inconclusive. You drugged the country through this for two years, and now we're going to do this again? Tonight, a roadmap to the impeachment inquiry. In a wide-ranging interview, the Saudi crown prince talks with 60 Minutes about Iran's attack on Saudi Arabia's most important oil-producing sites, the kingdom's relationship with the United States, and charges of human rights abuses. Chief among them... Did you order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? The plot to kill critic and columnist Jamal Khashoggi. What kind of threat is a newspaper columnist to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that he would deserve to be brutally murdered. If you're standing there, you, you don't would, know that You have no idea. Here. You don't know that shark. No wow. idea. She's like 10 feet offshore. Yeah, That's a great now. white shark lurking just off the coast of a popular Cape Cod beach. We wanted to know why these awe-inspiring animals are coming closer to our shores. So we went out into the North Atlantic with two groups of scientists. And yes, at some point, we actually needed a bigger boat to see what they are finding out about the great white shark. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on the 52nd season premiere of 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. Tonight, 60 Minutes has obtained a letter that indicates the government whistleblower who set off the impeachment inquiry of President Trump is under federal protection because he or she fears for their safety. These rapidly developing events began Tuesday when Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi ordered the investigation based on a phone call between Mr. Trump and the President of Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky asked Mr. Trump for missiles. Mr. Trump asked Zelensky for a favor, to investigate Mr. Trump's Democratic rivals. Democrats say this is the type of collusion that was the focus of the Mueller investigation, and it appears Washington will be immobilized by this the 13 months before Election Day. President Trump says he is the victim of a Democratic smear, crooked media, and treasonous spies. 
Tonight, we will hear from the man in charge of the investigation, the president's lead defender in Congress, and Speaker Pelosi, who for months resisted impeachment. We could not ignore what the president did. He gave us no choice. So it wasn't any change of mind. I always said, we will follow the facts where they take us. And when we see them, we will be ready. And we are ready. Early last week, details of the president's phone call filtered out in the press. As some at the Capitol called for impeachment, Mr. Trump phoned Speaker Pelosi to reassure her about the call with Zelensky. He told you about the phone call? He told me it was perfect. There was nothing in the call. Uh, But I know what was in the call. I mean, it, it was in the public domain. He didn't even know that it was wrong. You know, he was saying it was perfect. There was nothing wrong. But no, it is wrong. It is wrong for a president to say uh, that um, he wants you, a, a, another head of state, uh, to create uh, something negative about his possible political opponent to his own advantage at the expense of our national security, his oath of office to the Constitution, and the integrity of our elections. The facts are these. On July 25th, Mr. Trump was celebrating his new defense secretary in public, but two hours before, he spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Zelensky was interested in Javelin anti-tank missiles to defend himself from Russian-backed rebels. This is the official White House record of the call. Zelensky. We are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. Mr. Trump replied, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Mr. Trump then asked Zelensky to investigate a theory about a supposed Democratic National Committee computer server. The server, Mr. Trump said, they say Ukraine has it. He offered the assistance of the U.S. government. I would like to have the Attorney General call you or your people, and I would like you to get to the bottom of it. The call came to light after a U.S. intelligence official heard about it and filed an official government whistleblower complaint. The unnamed intelligence officer writes, I have received information from multiple U.S. government officials that the President of the United States is using the power of his office to solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 U.S. election. Here is our ally, here is Ukraine struggling militarily to fight off Russian aggression, struggling to be a democracy. And what is the President telling Ukraine through his words and his deeds? Democrat Adam Schiff is chairman of the House Intelligence Committee in charge of the investigation. Where does your committee take this from here? What's the procedure? Well, we have a pretty good roadmap, uh, thanks to the courage of this whistleblower. The complaint sets out uh, any number of witnesses, any number of documents that we need to seek. Do you expect the testimony of the whistleblower? Absolutely. Your committee already has an agreement with the whistleblower that he will testify. We have an agreement that he or she will testify, yes. Schiff told us that part of his focus is the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who has been encouraging Ukraine to investigate Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Giuliani denies any wrongdoing. Will you call Rudy Giuliani? 
We're going to uh, need evidence from Rudy Giuliani, and um, it's our intention as soon as uh, first thing next week to subpoena him for documents. Uh, and there may very well come a time uh, where we want to hear from him directly. Giuliani asked Ukraine to investigate Hunter Biden, the former vice president's son, who was on the board of a Ukrainian company that was under investigation there. No evidence surfaced that Hunter Biden did anything illegal. But during the Obama administration, Vice President Biden pressured Ukraine to fire its prosecutor general, a man Western governments considered to be corrupt. This left the Bidens with at least the appearance of a conflict of interest. In his call with President Zelensky, Mr. Trump said, The other thing, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son that Biden stopped the prosecution, and a lot of people want to find out about that, so whatever you can do with the Attorney General would be great. U.S. Attorney General William Barr has denied being involved. When I read the transcript, I see two leaders having admiration, not intimidation. Kevin McCarthy is the leader of House Republicans and heading the effort in the House against impeachment. What do you make of this exchange? President Zelensky says we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. And President Trump replies, I would like you to do us a favor, though. Well, you just added another word. No, it's you said, in I'd the like transcript. you to do a favor, though. Yes, it's he, in the, he, it's in when the I read White the tra- House transcript. When I read the transcript, President Zelensky brings up a javelin is a protection for anti-tank something that President Obama would not sell, that President Trump did to protect Ukraine. How do you expect the president's defense to roll out going forward? The defense of what? Well, there's an impeachment inquiry. Yeah. There's an impeach inquiry going forward. It probably never would move forward had the speaker waited 48 hours to have the transcript. We vote on important things every day, but there are certain votes that are different than others. Sending men and women off to war is the most difficult vote any member of Congress would ever make. I'll ask you again, how does the defense of the president, in your view, roll out from here? Why would we move forward with impeachment? There's not something that you have to defend here. You say the president has done nothing wrong. I take that to mean that you find it appropriate that the president asked Mr. Zelensky for an investigation of his Democratic rivals. The question before the House of Representatives is to impeach the president based upon a phone call that the speaker never even heard. Mr. Leader, with great respect to you, and I apologize for interrupting, but these are the White House talking points that were emailed to the Congress earlier this week. And I am asking you, was it appropriate for the president to ask for investigations of his Democratic rivals with another foreign leader. I've never seen one talking point from a White House. I'm talking to you based upon the most important facts we have. The whistleblower wasn't on the call. The IG, Inspector General, didn't read the call. But you and I have all the information we need. The president did nothing in this phone call that's impeachable. According to the whistleblower complaint, White House officials understood the gravity of what had transpired in the call. The whistleblower says he was told the record of the call was removed from the usual computer system 
to a separate electronic system that is otherwise used to store and handle classified information of an especially sensitive nature. Wednesday, the day the record of the call was revealed, Mr. Trump met in New York face-to-face with the man on the other end of the phone, Ukrainian President Zelensky. Zelensky was asked if he felt pressured. It was normal. We spoke about many things, and I... So I think, and you read it, that nobody pushed it, pushed me, yes. In other words, no pressure. President Trump, because you know what, there was no pressure. And you know there was, and by the way, you know there was no pressure. All you have to do is see it, what went on on the call. But it's not just the call. Investigators believe White House pressure began months before. Vice President Pence canceled plans to attend Zelensky's inauguration. Then, President Trump suspended nearly $400 million in aid to Ukraine that Congress had authorized. Against this backdrop, the president asked for the favor. I didn't threaten anybody. The impeachment inquiry began while Mr. Trump was meeting world leaders in New York. It's all a hoax, folks. It's all a big hoax. And the witch hunt continues. But they're getting hit hard on this witch hunt because when they look at the information, it's a joke. Impeachment for that? When Mr. Trump visited America's U.N. staff, it appeared he threatened whoever revealed the call. I want to know who's the person that gave the whistleblower. Who's the person that gave the whistleblower the information? Because that's close to a spy. You know what we used to do in the old days when we were smart, right? The spies and treason, right? We used to handle it a little differently than we do now. The president's remarks prompted the whistleblower's lawyers this weekend to send a letter to the acting director of national intelligence. They thanked the director for activating appropriate resources to ensure their client's safety. They write that certain individuals are offering a $50,000 bounty for their client's identity. The president has suggested that the people behind this are spies and perhaps guilty of treason. Uh, It's hard to describe how dangerous and loathsome that invitation to violence is. Adam Schiff hopes to begin hearing witnesses this week. Your Republican colleagues say... We just went through this, that the Mueller report was inconclusive. You drugged the country through this for two years, and now we're going to do this again? After the last two years that we've been through, the president well understood uh, that it was illegal to seek foreign assistance uh, in a campaign. Uh, And immediately after Mueller testified, that is exactly what he was back at doing again. Special counsel Robert Mueller testified about his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election on July 24th. Mr. Trump's call with Zelensky was the next morning. Will any Republican vote in favor of impeachment in your view? Having seen the transcripts, having listened to my conference, I haven't heard one member from any element inside there Tell me this rises to impeachment. Since our interview, one Republican representative, Mark Amaday, announced support for the impeachment inquiry. Amaday was chair of the Trump 2016 election campaign in Nevada. 
your Republican colleagues say, well, the, the call is the call, but there's nothing here that rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, they're wrong. And it remains to be seen because it's not just what happens in the call. It's part of the sequencing of events as well. You withdraw a couple hundred million dollars worth of uh, assistance to a country and then a couple of days later say, by the way, can you help me with my campaign? In other words, uh, there's a sequencing there. What is your message to the White House in terms of cooperation? To the White House? Speak the truth. Honor your oath of office to the Constitution of the United States. Speak the truth and let us work together to have this be a unifying experience, not of dividing one for our country. Don't make this any worse than it already is. The Trump administration appointed a veteran U.S. diplomat as special envoy to Ukraine. Kurt Volker put Mr. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, in touch with Ukrainian officials. Volker abruptly resigned on Friday. He's expected to testify to the committee. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman rules Saudi Arabia day-to-day on behalf of his father, the king. The heir to the throne is a man of contradictions. He presents himself as a young, progressive leader, a supporter of women in the workplace, and famously, behind the wheel. But he is also conducting a bloody war in Yemen, stands accused of targeting civilians and children, and employing famine as a weapon. He's rounded up political dissidents, and the CIA believes he is behind the brutal murder of Washington Post colonist Jamal Khashoggi, a prominent critic of the Crown Prince. Earlier this month, after an Iranian missile and drone attack on Saudi oil facilities, the United States committed additional American troops to help defend the Saudis. It was nearly midnight by the time we spoke with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman on Tuesday at the royal court in Jeddah. There was a lot to ask. Our first question was about the death a year ago of Jamal Khashoggi, something the Crown Prince has never discussed in a television interview. Did you order the murder of Jamal Khashoggi? Absolutely not. This was a heinous crime. But I take full responsibility as a leader in Saudi Arabia, especially since it was committed by individuals working for the Saudi government. What does that mean, that you take responsibility? When a crime is committed against a Saudi citizen by officials working for the Saudi government, as a leader I must take responsibility. This was a mistake, and I must take all actions to avoid such a thing in the future. On October 2, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and never left. Turkish investigators allege a Saudi hit team was waiting for him. They report he was killed almost immediately and that his body was dismembered. To this day, his remains have not been found. Saudi public prosecutors have charged 11 men, including the deputy intelligence chief, Major General Ahmed Asiri. Saud al-Qahtani, once the prince's powerful right-hand man, has been implicated but not formally charged. The world wants the answer to this question. How did you not know about this operation? Some think that I should know what three million people working for the Saudi government do daily. It's impossible that the three million would send their daily reports to the leader or the second highest person in the Saudi government. Two of your closest advisors who are accused of orchestrating this plot, were fired 
by the king, removed from your inner circle. The question is, how could you not know if this was carried out by people who are close to you? Today, the investigations are being carried out. And once charges are proven against someone, regardless of their rank, it will be taken to court. No exception made. I've read what the Saudi prosecutor has said about those that are charged in this murder. And it's gruesome, the details. When you heard that people close to you and in your government carried out such a grisly murder and that the American government thinks that you ordered it, what did you think? I believe what you mentioned is not correct. There isn't an official statement announced by the American government in this regard. There isn't clear information or evidence that someone close to me did something to that effect. There are charges and they're being investigated. But again, you cannot imagine the pain that we suffered, especially as the Saudi government, from a crime such as this one. The CIA has concluded with medium to high confidence that you personally targeted Khashoggi and you probably ordered his death. I hope this information to be brought forward. If there is any such information that charges me, I hope it is brought forward publicly. What kind of threat is a newspaper columnist to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that he would deserve to be brutally murdered? There is no threat from any journalist. The threat to Saudi Arabia is from such actions against a Saudi journalist. This heinous crime that took place in a Saudi consulate. I spoke with a prominent U.S. senator before I came here, and he said, because of what happened with Jamal Khashoggi and what's happened in Yemen, that, in his words, there's not a lot of goodwill around here in Congress for Saudi Arabia. How much has it hurt the relationship? The relationship is much larger than that. And this is a heinous incident and painful to all of us. Our role is to work day and night to overcome this and to make sure our future is much better than anything that happened in the past. On Saturday, September 14th, just before 4 a.m., an onslaught of more than two dozen Iranian-made drones and low-flying cruise missiles crippled the kingdom's oil production. These images, never before released, are from the Saudi state oil company known as Aramco. This attack hit the heart of Saudi Arabia's oil industry. Were you blindsided? I might disagree with you. This attack didn't hit the heart of the Saudi energy industry, but rather the heart of the global energy industry. It disrupted 5.5% of the world's energy needs, the needs of the U.S. and China and the whole world. The kingdom is the world's number one importer of arms, of military equipment. Billions of dollars spent on equipment. How could it not prevent an attack like this? Saudi Arabia is almost the size of a continent. It is bigger than all of Western Europe. We have 360 degrees of threats. It's challenging to cover all of this fully. Saudi Arabia's air defenses include U.S. Patriot and Hawk missile systems, which were not designed to shoot down drones. What do you think was the strategic reason that Iran struck Aramco? I believe it's stupidity. There is no strategic goal. 
Only a fool would attack 5% of global supplies. The only strategic goal is to prove that they are stupid, and that is what they did. Secretary Mike Pompeo has called what Iran did, in his words, an act of war. Was it an act of war? Of course, yes. What kind of effect would a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran have on the region? The region represents about 30% of the world's energy supplies, about 20% of global trade passages, about 4% of the world GDP. Imagine all these three things stop. This means a total collapse of the global economy, and not just Saudi Arabia or the Middle East countries. Iran appears willing to risk war to improve its position. After the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, the U.S. imposed tough economic sanctions. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, will not negotiate until the sanctions are lifted. It is a standoff. The crown prince told us all options should remain on the table. If the world does not take a strong and firm action to deter Iran, we will see further escalations that will threaten world interests. Oil supplies will be disrupted and oil prices will jump to unimaginably high numbers that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Does it have to be a military response? I hope not. Why not? Because the political and peaceful solution is much better than the military one. Do you think that President Trump should sit down with President Rouhani and craft a new deal? Absolutely. This is what President Trump is asking for. This is what we all ask for. It is the Iranians who don't want to sit at the table. Since 2015, the United States has provided limited support to Saudi Arabia in their war against an Iranian-backed militia to their south in Yemen. The United Nations estimates that the conflict has left more than 19,000 civilians dead or injured. Ten million people are starving. It is called the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. What's the solution? First, if Iran stops its support of the Houthi militia, the political solution will be much easier. Today we open all initiatives for a political solution in Yemen. We hope this happens today rather than tomorrow. You're saying tonight that you want to negotiate an end to the war in Yemen? We are doing this every day. But we try to turn this discussion into an actual implementation on the ground. And the Houthis a few days ago announced a ceasefire from their side. We consider it a positive step to push for more serious and active political dialogue. Why, after five years, are you optimistic tonight that a ceasefire could hold? that could lead to an end to the war in Yemen. As a leader, I must always be optimistic every day. If I'm a pessimist, I should leave my post and work somewhere else. Here in Saudi Arabia, social change is happening slowly. More than two years after the crown prince came to power, most women still cover their faces. I'm looking for someone to interview. And we struggled to find any who would speak with us on camera. Women recently won the right to drive by royal decree. Guardianship laws that prevent women from traveling without a man's permission have also been relaxed. But some of the women who fought for these rights have lost their own freedom in the process. 
There are about a dozen female activists that have been detained for more than a year. Why were they put in jail? Saudi Arabia is a country governed by laws. Some of these laws I might disagree with personally, but as long as they are now existing laws, they must be respected until they are reformed. One of the most prominent female activists who fought for the right to drive is Lujain Al-Hathloul. She has been held in a Saudi prison for over a year. Is it time to let her go? This decision is not up to me. It's up to the public prosecutor, and it's an independent public prosecutor. Her family says that she has been tortured in prison. Is that right? If this is correct, it is very heinous. Islam forbids torture. The Saudi laws forbid torture. Human conscience forbids torture. And I will personally follow up on this matter. You will personally follow up on it? Without a doubt. Publicly, you have pledged to change Saudi Arabia, to transform the economy, to talk about a moderate Islam, to allow women to have more rights. Yet there is a crackdown and a jailing of women who raise issues about things that need to change in Saudi Arabia. That is the perception that you do not support women's rights and human rights and that these are concrete examples of women who have been jailed. This perception pains me. It pains me when some people look at the picture from a very narrow angle. I hope that everybody comes to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and sees the reality and meets women and Saudi citizens and judges for themselves. What lessons have you learned and have you made mistakes? Even prophets made mistakes. So how come we as humans expect not to make mistakes? The important thing is that we learn from these mistakes and not repeat them. The book and movie Jaws introduced us to the great white shark more than 40 years ago and scared us out of our wits. Much of the film was shot in the waters off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The irony is that when it came out in the mid-1970s, there were very few white sharks around Cape Cod. The species was in the midst of a serious decline, and the movie made it worse, with fishermen hunting the few great whites that there were. White sharks were granted federal protection in 1997, and in the years since have made a comeback that has delighted conservationists and frightened swimmers and surfers. On Cape Cod this summer, shark sightings and beach closings were about as common as lobster rolls. As we saw for ourselves, the Atlantic great white shark is back. Look at this fish. Look at this fish. Yeah, look at this fish. On a Tuesday in mid-September, we are with Dr. Greg Scomo, chief shark scientist for the Massachusetts Department of Marine Fisheries, following an 11-foot white shark swimming just feet off the beach near Truro on Cape Cod. And if you're standing there, you, you don't would, know that shark. No you don't know that shark. No here. idea. She's like 10 feet offshore. Yeah, it's very close now. White sharks are so close to shore because that's where their favorite food is. Gray seals, thousands of which now call Cape Cod home. This is the restaurant right here. These sharks have found the restaurant and they're waiting for the doors to open. You know? And when those seals begin to leave the beach, you know... It's, it's dinner time. It's dinner time. 
Skomo and his team from the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy are trying to attach electronic tracking tags to as many sharks as they can, nearly 200 so far. The way they do it is fascinating. Pilot Wayne Davis locates sharks from his spotter plane, then guides boat captain John King onto them. Yeah, use a little gas, John. He's right on the shoal. It's about as good as it's going to get. Standing on a pulpit on the bow of a small boat, Greg Skomo wields a long pole that has a dart and a tag at the end. Wait. Right there. Done. You got him? Tag. That was it. There he goes. Oh, my my God. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful placement, Greg. Yeah, thank you, John. Nice work. You can see where it was? Yeah, you can see it right at the base of the dorsal seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're going to learn about that fish for the next nine, ten years. They will track the fish because the tag constantly emits a ping that is picked up when the shark swims close to acoustic receivers attached to buoys. And how many of these do you have up and down the coast? We have over 100 out all over Massachusetts. And that's just you. Other people have others. Yeah, so we can actually track the movements of our white sharks when they leave here. The tags also help Skomal and his research colleague, Megan Winton, figure out just how many sharks there are and have established that Cape Cod is now one of the world's white shark hotspots. They regularly haul buoys out of the water and download data from them to a tablet that displays each time a tagged shark swims by. Lots of white shark detections. This tells them a lot about individuals. They have confirmed that they are loners and that the same one will often come back to precisely the same hunting ground year after year. A white shark seemed to be hunting Greg Skomo last year when it came up jaws open right under the pulpit. Whoa! Holy crap! What? right up and this... opened his mouth right at my feet. That shook him up for a bit, but he insists yeah, it shouldn't shake up the public. You know, all I can tell them is is that the probability of them being bitten is incredibly low, but it's not much more I can say. Because that fear is primal. I think that fear is primal. I think it's innate. I think it's in them. It's in us. It's in all of us. Five days after our day on the water off Cape Cod, we needed a bigger boat for a very different shark-tagging expedition 600 miles to the northeast, just off Hay Island in Nova Scotia. We boarded a 125-foot research ship called Osearch, which has been tagging Atlantic white sharks from Florida to Canada since 2012. Founder Chris Fisher invited us to join the first day of his 2019 Nova Scotia expedition. And we come up here, we've been here 24 hours, we've seen two or three sharks, and no one ever even knew to come look here before. O-Search launches a team on a small boat to hook white sharks much as fishermen would, using long lines, bait, and floats to keep them near the surface. Hooked in the corner of the mouth, squared away, everything's green out here. O-Search is a converted Alaskan crab boat equipped with a platform that's lowered into the water off one side. As the small boat tows the shark alongside, O-Search fishing master Brett McBride leaps onto the submerged platform into water that's 49 degrees. With the line in his hand, 
he guides an 1,100-pound male white shark onto the cradle. Whoa, whoa, look at that. The platform is raised out of the water, effectively beaching the shark. It offers no resistance, worn out after being hooked and towed for nearly an hour. McBride gets right in its face to insert a hose between its giant jaws. Keeping the clean seawater, I'm pulling over its gills. I'm making sure it's getting good oxygen. A team member starts a clock. They don't want to keep the shark out of the water for more than 15 minutes. And OSEARCH chief scientist, Dr. Robert Huter, gives me an opportunity I'm not quite sure I want. So, Bill, just go ahead. Go ahead and take your time to feel how beautiful that is. Oh, my God. How smooth. Then go this way. Rub your hand the other way, and you feel it's kind of bumpy. Yeah. My God. The O-Search team swarms the shark, drawing blood and tissue samples, picking off parasites to be analyzed, and measuring its girth and length. 371 total. That's 371 centimeters, or 12 feet 2 inches. The biggest Atlantic great white they've caught was a 16-foot female who weighed 3,500 pounds. As Chris Fisher measures this one, Bob Huter inserts an acoustic tag, like the one Greg Skomal attaches with a dart. That doesn't harm the shark? No. It's just, it floats in the body cavity. Let's roll the shark, everybody step back. After the shark is rolled onto its belly, there we are. Got 11 minutes. Chris Fisher drills through the dorsal fin. He insists it's no more painful than piercing an ear. He's attaching the tag that really sets O-Search apart in the world of white shark tracking. The spot tag allows us to track this animal in real time for up to five years. The spot tag will send a signal to a satellite each time this shark's dorsal fin comes above the surface of the water. O-Search has put nearly 50 of them on Atlantic white sharks and displays their tracks on its website. And that's how you learn not only where they are, but what they're doing where they are, which is what you need to know to manage, right? Where's the mating? Where's the birthing? Where's the foraging? Where's the gestating? While some scientists criticize the O-Search techniques as too invasive, they are gathering a lot of data. Seventeen different research projects will get samples and information from a single shark. It doesn't take much to make everybody happy. Still, there are a lot of unknowns. No white shark has ever been kept in captivity, and no one has ever seen them mate or give birth anywhere. But there are also discoveries. The O-Search team has confirmed that the waters off Long Island are an important nursery for baby whites like these called pups. Did you get him? Yeah, got him. And back on Cape Cod, acoustic tags are teaching Greg Skomel about just how far adult sharks travel. So what's the most interesting thing you have learned about them? We now know, based on the tagging work we've done the last 10 years, is that when they leave Cape Cod, they go down to Florida and they spend the time in the Gulf of Mexico and they overwinter in these southern climates. But then some of these sharks move out into the open Atlantic Ocean. And when they're out in the middle of the Atlantic, they dive down to depths as great as 3,000 feet every day. And there's not a scientist on Earth that can tell you why they do that. Scientists have learned how long-lived they are. 
White sharks, we now know, live over 70 years. 70 years. 70 years. They don't start hunting seals until their late teens. But when they do, watch out. In this footage Greg Skomel shot, you see a seal leap out of the water with a shark right on its tail. Have you ever seen that Here, the shark catches a seal, and the ocean water explodes in blood red in an instant. The shark then swims away with half a seal in its jaws. Seals have been protected by federal law since 1972, and some 25,000 now live near Cape Cod. More seals means more sharks. And that's what worries the swimmers and surfers sharing the water with them. This photo was taken at the Cape barely a week ago. Great white sharks very rarely attack people. The one that killed a swimmer named Arthur Medici just off this beach last September was the first fatal attack on Cape Cod since 1936. But it triggered a fear of attacks that can hardly be measured. Scary warning signs on every beach. Stop bleed kits at lifeguard stands. A phone app called Sharktivity that reports sightings in real time, with local news doing much the same. And community meetings packed with frightened citizens. And no sharks or seals are worth a young man's life. They're just not. You're the scientist, Mm. but you also live here. And, you know, people are afraid. We can't bury our heads in the sand when it comes to shark attacks. And so that's in my face every day now. And then it always falls back on, you know, the question of, well, what do you tell your kids to do? You know, what do you tell your kids to do? You know, I, I tell my kids, don't go out past waist deep. That's chilling advice for swimmers, for surfers and for the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce. I mean, we basically got to undo everything Jaws did. I mean, we got half the people on the eastern seaboard terrified about something that almost never happens. I saw the teeth on this character here. People who are swimming nearby should not be afraid of that. No, they're clever. Like, even though we dress up like their food and try to fool them, they very rarely get fooled. What do you mean mean dress up like their food? You ever seen what someone in a wetsuit looks like compared to a seal? He's got a point. When this white shark's 15 minutes on the O-Surge platform ran out, we were ordered off. That is amazing. They gave him a name. Sydney. For the nearest Nova Scotia town and began lowering him back into the water. And what you guys have done to it, this does not harm or hurt the shark at all? No, because we're, we're monitoring the stress of the animal throughout. After a couple of minutes, he perked up, especially when he noticed the O-Search photographer in the water around the corner. Finally, with Fishmaster Brett McBride helping steer him by the tail, off went Sydney. There he goes. Do your thing. Good luck, old boy. Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. Next Sunday on 60 Minutes, Sharon Alfonsi meets a Texas Ranger with a unique talent. He coaxes confessions from serial killers, including one who is possibly the most prolific in history. Did I believe he was going to confess? Um, confess. Complete arrogance on my part, absolutely. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with that and more. 
on another edition of 60 Minutes.